From the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are your children. Jesus, you are not ashamed to call us your brothers. Holy Spirit, you are our stay within friend. Pray that as we assemble and focus our attentions and our affections upon your word, that we would learn and grow and be convicted and encouraged. Father, if there be those who need new life, we ask that you would speak the word and breathe life into death. Bring about repentance and faith and salvation. Help us in this time. We expect it and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be real honest with you all. This is one of those kind of feel like I'm sitting at the starting gate kind of horse race type deals. I'm like breathing smoking fire. Um, pretty excited about this passage and everything that's happened this morning has helped to increase that anticipation. So thanks uh, for everybody that's participating. That includes everybody that's saying, everybody that's been here. So so verse 14, we're just going to hit it running because we've got a lot to cover here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Um, (laughs) We need to take a quick look back at what we saw last week so we can set the table for what we're going to look at today and to connect those thoughts with the sense here in verse 14, uh, which is a conclusion type of statement leading up to a conclusion. And the conclusion is going to be after the sense here, But we need to see something from the past statement to understand something in the current statement so we'll be able to see what's coming up in the future. Anyway, I want to read 9 through 13 and then just read 14 with that. Um, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
So we saw last week in, in that passage that Jesus became a human. And all morning long, like even this morning as I was finishing this message and just listening to some music, I keep thinking and, and how much of this we just take for granted. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm not saying that in a mean way. We hear things like Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for me. Jesus came in the flesh. God in the flesh. Incarnation. How many, how many, how many of these things we have become numb to, unfortunately? And again, I'm not calling for ecstatic utterances and you know just shouts of praise every time we hear those things. But I'm afraid that we don't we just don't think enough about it, uh, especially in light of what we just heard and read. Um, Jesus suffering, Jesus um, becoming a person, God becoming a human, and God saying, I've adopted you as my children. Jesus not ashamed to call us his brother. Again, I, I wish... I wish we could just see it all with new eyes. And maybe new eyes isn't the right answer. Maybe it's, it's the eyes we have with a right application and appreciation for what's really being said. So that's, I really want to emphasize that this morning. Um, so, so we did see in this passage last week that Jesus became a human being. God became a human being and suffered to the point of death in order to be a forerunner, a pioneer of our salvation, tasting death for us after showing perfect obedience in his earthly life. And the writer said that it was fitting that God used suffering to show the perfection of Jesus and that Jesus was not ashamed to call us his brothers since we share the same source of life and that source is God himself. And then the writer quoted some Old Testament passages to show that Jesus speaks highly of those who follow in his footsteps, calling them his brothers and his children even. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay, so bring those thoughts into our first verse today. Since therefore, the children, Jesus' children, God's children, share in flesh and blood. Now who are the children? We are, right? Those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ's obedience by faith in the grace of God. The same children who were called so in the Old Testament quote that said, Behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore those children, Jesus' children, us, 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 <laughs> since we share in flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood and His children, His brothers, are made of the same stuff. Flesh and blood. That's what we're made of by God's design. And since we are, what did Jesus do? He Himself likewise partook of the same things. And we've already talked about this in Hebrews, but it bears repeating. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being. Losing nothing of His divine nature, He took on a human nature as well. Truly God and truly man. He partook of the same things. Not just a human body, mind you, but the human experience. And the emphasis here is not just on His body, but the fact that He took on our experience in suffering and obedience. Jesus shared in those too. He was not immune to these things. He didn't exist as a human being outside of these things. Quite the contrary, He likewise partook of them. 
He became like us, not just in form, but in experience. And that really sets the tone for our passage today. And then the next part of the verse talks about a certain part of what Jesus partook of. That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus suffered and He died like human beings do. Like humans do. Jesus died. And why did He do that? That through death, now listen, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And that's one of those, oh wow, what a statement statements. So why did Jesus die? That through death, the writer says here, by Jesus dying, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. So that leads me to ask the question, how did Jesus destroy the devil by dying? Well, and I guess a, a, a more elementary question is, did He destroy him? I mean, the devil's still around, right? He roars, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So is he destroyed or is he not destroyed? And the answer to that question is no and yes. The devil wasn't destroyed as in done away with and therefore not existing or doing anything anymore. Rather, as Albert Moeller says, Christ destroyed the devil in such a way, listen, that Satan can no longer do any ultimate spiritual damage to God's people. I'm going to read that again. Christ destroyed the devil in such a way that Satan can no longer do any ultimate spiritual damage to God's people. When a sports team beats another team by a large margin, we say they destroyed them. John and Asa were playing Tecmo Bowl the other day. Everybody remember Tecmo Bowl? Can I get an amen to Tecmo Bowl? You can't tackle Bo Jackson. It's impossible. You can't cover Jerry Rice. It's impossible. But not, not to embarrass Asa. Sorry, Asa. John beat him 63-3. to He destroyed him. Right? Think of it that way. Jesus in dying put a beat down on the devil. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, 13-15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. It was a merciless beatdown. Jesus, by dying, destroyed the devil. But let's not run by this too quickly and not notice how the devil is described here. Let me go back there so that we have that in front of us. He is called the one who has the power of death. Hmm. Now what's that mean? What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Commentator H.D.M. Spence Jones, which is quite a name. I didn't get his full name. He says this, quote, It is to be remembered that the devil through whom it was that sin first entered and death through sin is revealed to us generally as the representative of evil and as such the primeval manslayer with power given him over death, the penalty of sin, as long as man remains in his dominion. 
unredeemed. End quote. So that all being said, the devil introduced sin into the human race. And what did God say the consequence of sin would be? He was very straightforward, right? And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. That's just pretty clear, right? Paul says it this way in the oft-quoted Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin leads to death. Always has, always will. And so the devil, remember we're asking why he is said to have the power of death. And so the devil, as the one who first tempted man to sin, holds the power of death. Many atrocious and terrible things in the Scriptures are attributed directly to the devil. We saw that when we looked at Job, right? He said, let me add him. And God said, okay, you can do whatever you want. You just can't do this. And then you can do whatever you want. You just can't do this. And look at all the havoc he wreaked in Job's family and on Job himself. The devil did that. And here, in our Hebrews passage, we see that he, the devil, has the power of death. That word power is the Greek word kratos, and it means controlling power. The devil, the introducer of sin, thus controls the power of death. But Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. Jesus beat the devil past the point of submission. And so what does that mean? And how does that affect us? That's a good question with some really good answers. Verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So let's read 14 and 15 again because those need to go together. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. <laughs> so through death, which is just mind-blowing, Jesus destroyed the devil. And through death, Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And again, these are, these are wow statements. Jesus shared in flesh and blood to the point of death of His physical body, and in so doing, He delivered His people from the lifelong slavery they had lived in due to the fear of death. Now think about that for a minute. Anybody afraid of dying? Not me, man. I'm super Christian. Alright, cool. I would guess that even if you aren't afraid of dying at this point in your life, you probably have been at one time or at many other times of your life. I mean, just the thought of death elicits a host of feelings in human beings, doesn't it? We're not even comfortable mentioning mentioning death more often than not. And keep in mind what we saw in our last verse, that the devil is the one who has held the power of death for so long. And that makes it even more disturbing. Death, devil, fear. All those things run together like a pack of wild dogs. But Jesus in His incarnation, dealt decisively with all of them. He delivered us who were lifelong slaves to the fear of death. What does it mean to be delivered from something? Put it simply, it means to release or set free from something. Listen, church, we have been set free, released 
from our fear of death. We sang this morning, Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? Which is straight from 1 Corinthians 15, right? We've been released from our fear of death. And how and why? Because Jesus in His earthly body and His earthly life was obedient to the point of death. Jesus didn't say, well, I'll go this far, but I'm not going to die. Because I, I don't want to share in that. That, ugh, ugh. Again, as we've said so many times recently in Philippians 2, we've quoted it many times over the past weeks, that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So He died. So He partook of death. But of course, I would guess everybody in here knows Jesus didn't stay dead. Right? You say, well, I've heard that. I don't know if I believe it or not. It's true. My brother asked me one time, he said, how do you know you're right about being a Christian? That that your religion is the right one? I said, the day they produce the body of Jesus and show it to me, I'll say I'm wrong. The resurrection was God's approval of Jesus' life and ministry. He brought him back from the dead. And they've never been able to produce his body. They said a bunch of fishermen stole it from a, a host of Roman soldiers. That makes sense, right? The tomb's empty. And the resurrection proves that Jesus overcame death. He didn't just die. He didn't just stay dead. He overcame death by coming back to life. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. Right in the middle of that we see, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But look at this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now note that word first fruits. Jesus came back from the dead as the first to do it. But you're like, oh, no, the other people had come back to life before. And it's true. In both the Old and the New Testament, before Jesus' resurrection, we have accounts of dead people coming back to life. But Jesus' resurrection is different. And He was the first to be resurrected this way. I put this on Facebook the other day. Christopher Watkins says this, The resurrection is not a resuscitation. Jesus did not come back to life. He went forward to new life. His resurrection is not a return to the same existence that He had before He was crucified, like the resurrection of Lazarus or Jairus' daughter, whom Jesus brought back to life, but who later died a normal death. Here's the deal. That's the end of that quote, by the way. Here's the joy that comes from the truth in our passage today. Jesus destroyed the devil and freed us from the fear of death because we who are in Christ share in that special resurrection. We've been raised to new life. Just like Jesus was raised to new life. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our Wednesday night guys group. And we've just been reading and singing and quoting Romans. I ain't going to stop y'all. Romans 6, 5 to 10. For if we've been united with Him, Jesus, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That's special resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, listen, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. 
And my goodness gracious, don't miss that. Yes, he partook of death, and we partook of death in him. And also, since we did that in Christ, we share his resurrection. So listen to me, church. Believer, he will never die again since death no longer has dominion over him. Neither will we ever die. Nor does death have any dominion over us. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her, and I ask you, do you believe this? Oh, our bodies may stop functioning if Jesus doesn't come back first. Nobody gets out of this thing alive unless Jesus comes back and does what He does. But listen, our life is never going to end. Even if our bodies do expire and our spirits leave our bodies and they put our body in the grave or burn it up and scatter it over RFK Stadium, which is... No, I mean, <laughs> That's been demolished. RFK has been demolished. Even if all that happens, even then, when the resurrection happens, we're going to be reintegrated. We're going to be raised from the dead. Our bodies are. And be reunited with our spirits. And listen, we are going to spend eternity in a glorified body, glorifying God for the work that He's done in and through us for all eternity. That's what Jesus died to do for us. To free us from a lifelong fear of death. We do not have to fear death at all. At all. Ever. Never. Now R.C. Sproul said, I'm not afraid of being dead. It's the dying part that kind of bothers me a little bit. How's that going to happen? Slow and painful, quick and easy. Those are the questions we have. That's all right. We'll talk about that some in application too. Jesus did that for us. He did that. Why? Because of the special place we hold in His plan. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. So we come back to this angels thing, right? We've already talked about angels quite a bit. First chapter and second chapter of Hebrews. As we finish the second chapter, we come back to angels. Jesus is greater than angels. Man has an exalted place in God's plan, though we don't yet see all things subjected to man. Angels are ministers that serve man in God's plan. That's all from past passages. And here we come back to a lot of those thoughts all in one verse. We've spent most of today's passage so far exploring the work of Jesus in the flesh in His incarnation. And that work in human flesh shows that Jesus came to help who? Humans. For it surely is not angels that He helps. Jesus didn't become an angel, which is probably something that was being said at that time. So Jesus became an angel or was an angel. Jesus became a man, a human, and therefore showed whom He intended to help. But His work to destroy the devil and to overcome death was not for angels, but was for men. Angels exist, we said, to minister to men. And again, I'd ask you... Going back to that message, do we understand our prized place in the plan of God as human beings? By His grace, for His glory, 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And Steve mentioned this in, in the Old Testament passage that he read this morning. And the question is, who is or are the offspring of Abraham that Jesus helps? Well, Abraham had been promised offspring in the covenant that God had made with him. Offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. And the Jewish race says that they are Abraham's offspring. And in genetic slash DNA sense, they are. But God's word is very clear on this point. Who are, who is the offspring of Abraham? Now, of course, Jesus is the seed that was promised. But we see this in Galatians 3, 20, 25. Yeah, I think I've got it written down wrong here. But this is the right thing. Make sure before. Yeah. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, that's the possessive. We're not multiple Christ's. We are possessed by Christ. If that's true, then you are what? Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So he comes to help the offspring of Abraham. And who is the offspring of Abraham? Those who were baptized into Christ. Those who belong to Christ. Those are the offspring of Abraham. It is the children of faith who are the children of Abraham. It is those who are in Christ who have been saved by Jesus' redemptive work that are Abraham's offspring. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is saying and making clear to these Jewish believers who are in Christ, by the way. Jesus came to help, not angels, but rather those who would place their faith in Him to be their Savior, their priest, their brother, which is expanded upon more in verse 17. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I know I say this a lot by a lot of verses. We could have spent a month on this verse right here. This is packed. So we came out of last verse with Jesus helping the offspring of Abraham, those who are placed in Christ. And since He came to help them, therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And again, breathe that in. In exploring the incarnation even further, or would it be farther? I don't know. The writer says that in order to help those whom Jesus is not ashamed to call brothers, Jesus had to be made like them in every respect. Now what does that refer to? Well, it refers back to Him dying, which was common to the human race since sin came in back through Adam and Eve. We've already seen that Jesus died to destroy the devil and free His people from the fear of death, but there's more than the devil and death that Jesus dealt with in His incarnation. Oh, church. Don't just hear this like we always hear it. Jesus dealt with our sins and our sin in His incarnation. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, drawing a conclusion... And the conclusion is that Jesus was made like His brothers in every respect so that He might be effective in His ministry to God and to God's people. 
Who does the work between God and man? A priest does. Priestly work is ministering to God and to men. Okay, So here we see that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now do you see that beautiful work there? Jesus was made like us as human beings in every respect, of course without sin, because He's God. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that in God's service, serving God, He would become a high priest who is both merciful and faithful in making propitiation for the sins of the people. Now let's start with that word propitiation and then work backwards to see how all of this affects us. Okay? Jesus is said to have made propitiation for the sins of the people here. Now that word propitiation is a humdinger in theological ramifications. Okay? It's the Greek word hilaskamahi, and the Bible since lexicon defines it as to propitiate, or propitiation means to appease an offended party's wrath for some wrongdoing in order to regain goodwill, normally accomplished by making a sacrifice to an offended deity. So, in our case today, the deity, God, is offended. Why? What's the offense? Our sin, right? Now, normally, the sinner would seek to appease the offended deity. I'll make a sacrifice, which you see all through the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. You've got to bring this if you do this. And you've got to wring its neck and you've got to cut it open and you've got to shed the blood. And, and so because of the sin that you commit, you've got to do all these things. And that's how it would normally work. The sinner would seek to appease the offended deity by offering a sacrifice. But in this case, listen. God takes action to appease His wrath against our sin by sending Jesus as the one who would be our sacrifice. And that sacrifice is made in order to regain God's goodwill. <laughs> the word propitiation also carries an inference to making atonement for. Which means the process of propitiation brings oneness. Atonement is at one It was separated now we're brought back together. Propitiation brings oneness to two parties by paying the penalty for the offense, which we know is exactly what Jesus did. Listen, Jesus stood between His brothers and God's wrath, taking the penalty for their sins upon Himself on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God which they rightly deserve. So now, God, instead of offended, has spent His wrath for my sins by placing those sins on the person of Christ and punishing them there instead of in and on me. That's propitiation. And it's not a popular truth in our day and time. People mock the doctrine and call it divine child abuse. As if God's pleasure in crushing His own Son was not biblical. But our verse here in Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
Jesus did what He did in propitiation in order to remove the penalty for our sins from us in order to serve God and please God. And as we've said many times over the past few months going back into our study of Ephesians on Wednesday nights, this had always been the plan from eternity past. In the service of God, as a priest to God, Jesus absorbed God's wrath so that God's people could have their sins taken out of the way and God and His people could enjoy perfect fellowship for all eternity. That's what Jesus being made like us and dying on the cross for our sins accomplished. And that's the gospel that God had designed to be proclaimed from forever past into forever future to the praise of His glorious grace. And Jesus, in becoming a man, in those brief 33-ish years, and in bearing our sins and the wrath of God for them, that's what Jesus accomplished for God and for us. And don't miss that Jesus is called both merciful and faithful and a high priest in this verse. Now we'll spend much more time on this high priest thought line when we get into chapters 4 and 5. But suffice it to say today that the high priest was a special post that one man filled in the Levitical sacrificial system and he alone carried the blood into the presence of God once a year to make atonement, there's that word again, for the sins of God's people. And Jesus, who was God in the flesh, became like us in every way in order that as our high priest before God, he might be merciful and faithful. He isn't bitter and spiteful, in accomplishing our redemption. Listen, He understands our struggles. He feels our pain. To quote a recent, I think pretty silly tagline, He gets us. (laughs) But it's true. He gets us and He loves us as He carries our sins to the cross. In mercy, He pays our penalty. And He does it faithfully, without any error, without any kind of regret. He drinks the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs at the bottom because He knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows the hardships and struggles firsthand. He didn't read a book about it. He lived it. And He gladly bears away our burdens and brings pleasure to us and His Father as we are united in holy bliss because of His merciful, faithful work for God and man as our appointed high priest. We could stop there, but we're not going to. Because there's one more glorious truth to cover before we finish. Verse 18 says that Jesus' humanity helps us in another wonderful way. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, man. <laughs> you ever just like listen to the radio and they just play one great song after another? You're like, oh man, there's another one. There's another one. Oh wow, I had to tell you. Oh, and it's something. <laughs> it's like the hits just keep coming in these 14, 15, 16, eight, five simple verses. Now this is another thought that will be dealt with more in detail in chapter 4. 
as far as temptation and us dealing and him dealing with our temptation. But here we see that Jesus' humanity didn't just help him see our need for forgiveness, but it also brought him face to face with what it means to be tempted. Now this is, this is a mystery, y'all. How Jesus, who is holy God in human flesh, could be tempted. Holy God has never been attracted to or, te- or tempted by sin. Sin, somebody said it this morning, sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Holiness itself means separation from anything sinful. But when Jesus became a man, He faced temptation. Like humans do. And let's be clear up front, we'll talk about this when we get there in chapter 4. Jesus never sinned when tempted. Jesus didn't entertain sinful thoughts or harbor secret sins in his heart or mind that no one else saw. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. But we see from the wilderness temptations he faced, and we'll blow through those in an application point in a minute. Um, Those temptations that he faced from Satan that offers to sin were made to Jesus. And Jesus refused them and turned them away. So all through his life, Jesus faced temptations that are common to human beings. And he never once allowed those temptations to lead him to commit acts of sin. And again, we've said this a few uh, times in the men's group on Wednesday night, that temptation itself is not sin. The Bible is clear that we're all tempted in many ways. And it's inevitable that temptations come. And Jesus showed that by being tempted but never sinning. So temptation is not a sin. And he did this, the writer of Hebrews says, he suffered this way, and as such he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help us who are being tempted. Glory. I think more often than not, we're ashamed when we're tempted. And we keep it to ourselves. We hide it. We sit in the dark with it. But Jesus became a man in order to help us when we are being tempted. And that's gloriously good news. Our brother knows what it means to be tempted. And he knows what it means to bear up under the full weight of that temptation. And he knows how to overcome it. And he doesn't just keep that knowledge to himself. He partook of it so that he would be able to help us when we are being tempted. That's one wonderful part of what his being in human flesh accomplished. And remember, he's merciful and he's faithful. As our high priest, he not only atoned for the sins that we have and will commit... He also helps us to not commit the sins that we are tempted by and can't avoid. Listen, Jesus can do that in and through you. For me, for you, for us. For because He Himself has suffered when when tempted, He is able. That's now. And it's always now. Now He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is better. 
than the temptation. And He helps us remember that and apply that to our lives. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Ah, shucks, devil, you're right. No, upward I'll look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Wow. And I'll tell you right now, we didn't really scratch the surface of this passage. But we're going to turn our attention to application now through three S's. Seduce. S-E-D-U-C-E. Sleep. Y'all know how to spell that one. And satisfy. Seduce, sleep, and satisfy. Three application points. What do we do with this information? First application point is seduce. And we're talking about temptation there. What do we do about, with, for our temptation? Let me tell you what you do with it. You ready? Run to Jesus with it. How many times have you thought something, wanted something, desired something, and your first turn is on your heel away from the cross, away from the Bible, away from the Savior, so that you can do it? Or so that you can hide it from Him? Yeah, right, like that's going to happen. Let me ask you this, parents. How elated would you be if your kids came to you and said, Hey, Mom, Dad, I was going to get together with some friends this evening and they were saying we were going to do some drinking. And I really am tempted to do it. Will you help me to not do that? Hmm. Would that make you happy? Oh, yeah. (laughs) What if your kids brought their temptation to you and asked for your help in handling it? Hi. Run to Jesus with your temptation. And I would add to that, run to other believers with your temptation. Because sometimes, if we're honest, it doesn't feel like Jesus is there, right? All we can feel is the temptation. Now I would say run to Him anyway. Say, Jesus, I don't feel You, but You said to bring this to You. I'm tempted to do this. That's fine. But constant, consistent temptation. Bring that to other believers and say, man, I'm really struggling. I'm consistently being tempted by blank. Would you please pray for me? And listen, believer, if somebody comes to you with that, put down what you're doing and pray for them. Or what if you text somebody and say, man, I am in a dark place right now and I am really tempted to blank. Would you please pray for me? Put down what you're doing and call them. Come on, brother, let me walk you through this. Let me walk with you through this. And let me help you get out of that dark place with Jesus leading the way. Oh, that's church, y'all. That's who we are. That's what we're called to. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands because I know the answer, it's all of us. How many of you this morning would be so embarrassed if everybody knew what you were tempted by? Man, take the mask off of it. Let somebody know. It robs it of its power so many times. Run to other believers. Run to Jesus with your temptation. 
He's a faithful and merciful high priest. How did he deal with temptation? Again, I said I'd run through this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> and I don't talk about this that Wednesday. Jesus was led up. Oh, I got to use my finger. By the, by the who? By the Spirit into the wilderness to be strengthened for many days and encouraged. In... Jesus led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Make it make sense. Might we be led by the Spirit into temptation sometime? No, but we might be led up into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. God tempts no one with evil. God tempts no one with sin. But the Spirit might lead us to a point where He's like, all right, devil, we saw it in Job, right? You can do this to him, but no further. Why? Why would the Spirit do that? So we might run to Him. And how did Jesus deal with that? Sorry for all that scribbling. The tempter came to him, if you're the Son of God, but he answered, it is written. Then the devil took him to the holy place and said to him, if you do this, and they, Jesus said to him again, it is written. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said to him, I'll give you all these. Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written. It is written. It is written. How did Jesus deal with temptation? The Word. Let me tell you what, the most effective tool you have in your arsenal against temptation is the Bible. Because the Bible tells us all these things we're looking at this morning, right? The Bible tells us to take our temptation to Him. The Bible tells us to run to Jesus, to run to each other. The Bible tells us in humility that we are to deal with sin this way. Or do you suppose that it said no purpose in James 4 that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. That's a good word. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in dealing with sin, temptation, don't be proud because He gives grace to the humble. God actually opposes the proud. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And He will flee from you. We just saw that in what Jesus did, right? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Listen, that means go to God and say, I can't handle this myself. I'll deal with it myself. It's not the answer to your temptation. Has never been, will never be. Behavior modification is not the answer to your temptation. Has never been, will never be. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. God, this is stronger than me. But it's not stronger than you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And this is our memory verse for our Wednesday night group. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Remember, Jesus became like us in every respect that He'd be able to deal with this. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted. You're like, shoo, beyond beyond your ability. He didn't say He won't allow you to be tempted. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So with the Word, in humility, going to God and saying, I am tempted and you have promised. 
that you would provide a way of escape that I might be able to endure this. That's how you handle temptation. So that's seduce. Now sleep. Death. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. My daughter's about to have a baby, y'all. We're going to celebrate that. And as long as that baby's alive, we'll celebrate the day of their birth. Day of death's better than the day of birth. We don't feel that way, do we? It's true, though. Why is it true? Because Jesus overcame death. He destroyed the one who through the power of death had held us in lifelong slavery to that fear. 63 to 3. Actually, I'd say the devil didn't score. More like 63 to nothing. So that we don't have to fear death. I can believe God when He says the day of my death is better than the day of my birth. Paul says it this way. For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? His gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, my desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Sometimes we're so earthly minded we're of no heavenly good. I don't buy that whole, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good thing. No, no, let's be heavenly minded. And say, man, the day of my death is better than the day of my birth. I can't wait to go to heaven. I can't wait to be with Jesus. I can't wait for every tear to be wiped away and there to be no more stuff that is so yucky. Tears and cancer and disease. And ultimately, death's going to be done away with too. Jesus says this in Revelation 1. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) But Jesus laid his right hand on me, John says, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. <laughs> I'm abusing the pen this morning. If you're not. No Christian, don't look at death as the end. It's not. Spurgeon said, Today you will be with me in paradise as the whisper of Christ to every dying saint. Oh man. That don't sound too bad. Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf's telling Pippin what it's like to be dead, he's like, there's shores and a beautiful sunrise. And Pippin said, well, that don't sound too bad. He's like, oh, no. It's not bad at all. You were born to die. It's graduation. You get your cap and gown. You get to... Hit the gritty across the stage and dance into Jesus' presence. Woo, that's right. Come on. (laughs) 
Some are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Speaking in tongues up there. I think it was Alice Trebek. I couldn't find it. I saw this. Death is simply to go to sleep here and wake up in the presence of Jesus. Oh, man. That don't sound too bad. No. Not bad at all. We don't have to be afraid of dying. Well, we don't have to be afraid of death. There are some scary things about dying. If you get a, a diagnosis that's going to be a long, painful death, that, that, that process is scary. Absolutely. I don't want to minimize that at all. But what's at the end of it? Listen, it's going to make it all seem like momentary light suffering yeah. compared to the glory that you're going to get on the other side. He's promised us that. Yeah. Listen, Christian, don't be afraid of death. Look forward to it. I'm not saying go out and make it happen. Don't want to say that. <laughs> but it's all good on the other side. Not bad at all. Draw comfort in that. Think about the people who have gone on before you. Oh man, that's they wouldn't come back here if they had the option. And I know that's cliche, but it's true. They're with Jesus. To go to sleep here and wake up in the presence of Jesus is what death is for us. So seduce, sleep, and finally, oh my word, satisfy. This is dealing with that word propitiation. Jesus Christ was and is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who made propitiation for the sins of His people. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's propitiation. I can't remember the other song that was popping in my head. Justice has been satisfied. Somebody help me there. Jesus, huh? Jesus, Is it Jesus? Thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. That yes, the wrath of God completely satisfied. It's probably in all those songs, so you're probably all right. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, listen. Concerning your sins, the wrath of God has been satisfied. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God has done what we in the flesh, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And how do you do that? By sending His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8. Jesus became like us in every way, took our flesh upon Himself, took our sins upon Himself, and God spent his full wrath for our sins upon the person of Christ. So listen, believer, God is satisfied. And not only did He punish your sins, He gave you the gift of Jesus' righteousness as a free gift. You don't just get your sins taken away, you get the perfect gift of perfect righteousness. God is satisfied! Amen. And the work of propitiation is what brought that satisfaction about. My little children, John says in John 2, 
1 John 2. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's not universalism. We don't have time to get into that. What we do have time for is that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is our advocate with the Father. And He is righteous. And because He bore the penalty for our sins, we are righteous. I'm going to finish. I've debated about whether to do this. I'm just going to read this and we'll be done. Now listen, don't run out. We're going to pray for Josh and Shane Young, are they? They're here. Um, They're leaving Wednesday. Early, early, early Wednesday morning. Some of y'all be going to bed when they're leaving maybe. Um, So I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray. Then we're going to pray for them and then we'll be dismissed. Thinking about propitiation and God being satisfied. Who has believed what He's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. God, what have you done? What have you done? crushed your son so that my sins could be atoned for. You punished my sins in the person of Jesus 
so that you would have no wrath to spend on me anymore. God, I thank you for the propitiating work of Jesus Christ. I thank you that it satisfied you. God, help it to satisfy me. Help it to satisfy us, knowing that you are satisfied. And God, when we are seduced by sin, when we are tempted, help us to bring it to you. Help us to bring it to each other, humbly confessing that we can't handle it ourselves, but you will provide a way of escape from that temptation. All those temptations, every single one of them. And help us, God, to not fear death. Help us to look forward to death as that moment when we see you face to face. Close our eyes here and open our eyes there with you. God, I thank you that it was your good pleasure to crush your son. And that you did it for me. Help us to celebrate it well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Josh, I'm going to come up here and represent your family with us. Um, I guess Bob's in the back, Don, come up. Steve, Will, you guys want to come up too, if you would, and surround. Put your hands on this fella. Oh, oh, yeah, Melek, you're deacon two. Deacon three. Deacon one, deacon two, deacon three. I'll report for duty, please. I'm a goof. I forget things very easily. Oh, there comes the, almost all the rest of that beautiful family. And big dark eyes looked up at me while we were singing. <laughs> Pretty beautiful. Hey, look at that. Elder three, too. Uh, I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this beautiful family. Uh, these two people that you made into one, and now there's four of them. Uh, we thank you, God, that, that you're sending them out to faithful, fruitful ministry. And God, we hate to see them go and we rejoice to see them go. Knowing that your work is going to be accomplished, your word is going to flourish, your glory is going to be shown through them. We ask for their protection. We ask that you would provide for them. And God, we ask that you would help them, help Josh and Chanel specifically, to be one and to love and serve each other. That they would be one and love and serve their kids. And God, that they would be kept for all time, until they see you face to face. And God, we do ask that you would help us to participate in the ministry with and through them as we support them and encourage them. Help us to be those who are quick with a, a call, a text, uh, an encouragement, a message, whatever it takes. And God, send them out. We send them out with joy and anticipation of what you're going to do in their lives. And we ask you to accomplish it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, let me read a... I about forgot we do this thing too. You know, doxology benediction thing. I'll do that and then we'll be dismissed. Sorry, I'm out of sorts up here. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord.
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.